Welcome to this production of Source Wellness's The Intersection Podcast. Every month, Source Wellness co-founders Jacob Aqua and Marshall Kupkamore dive deep into the intersection of DEIMW, diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness, for the purpose of cultivating human-centered cultures of well-being within corporations and nonprofits. We host discussions with subject matter experts in order to explore how each of these five components work together to cultivate a sense of well-being, inclusion, and equity in company culture. These discussions are held live for the public in webinar format and are repurposed for this podcast. If you're interested in attending these live webinars, click the link in our bio to our LinkedIn page where you can register for our next monthly webinar. In this discussion, we hosted a webinar with Angela R. Howard called Leadership Commitment to wellness and culture. Angela led a short gratitude practice, shared about her past and how it has led to her current work, talked about the crucial need to cultivate human-centered workplaces, discussed the importance of engagement by leadership in order to cultivate DEIMW efforts within organizations, and so much more. It was so, so wonderful talking with Angela. And without further ado, let's get to it. So welcome everyone to this pod, this webinar, um, the intersection. Having Angela R. Howard, we're so excited to have you here today. I'm your co-host Jacob Aqua and Chief Mindfulness Officer of Source Wellness. And my name is Marshall Kubkamor. I'm your second co-host for today, and I'm the CEO of Source Wellness. And for this Source Wellness webinar, we will discuss the crucial intersection of D-E-I-M-W, discovering how diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness support each other in an integrated approach that provides value to our personal and systemic growth. Source Wellness's vision is to become the most trusted and respected source of high-quality D-E-I-M-W culture direction for organizations. We illuminate these five values by bringing strategy consulting, seminars, and other programming to large companies and nonprofits. Our goal is to help organizations cultivate inclusive culture to help all employees feel a greater sense of belonging, experience a more meaningful work experience, and drive positive change around organizational productivity and well-being. So this podcast structure will have a short practice led by Angela. We'll have a discussion and then five to 10 minutes for Q&A at the end. And introducing our amazing guest today, we're so excited. Angela R. Howard is an organizational psychologist, culture strategist, and social entrepreneur, working to build human-centric workplaces, better leaders, and thriving communities alongside growth-minded leaders. Her company, Angela R. Howard Consulting, works with organizational leaders to diagnose symptoms of harmful culture, challenge object objectivity in the face of hard truths, and facilitate meaningful changes in organizations through oper operationalizing culture building. Before starting her company, Angela served as a leader at a variety of organizations 
ranging from 120 employees all the way up to 300,000 employees, including Beam, Suntory, Rotary International, Walgreens Boots Alliance, Kaiser Permanente, and Dober. Her culture, employee experience, and transformational impact has touched more than 500,000 employees. Wow. Angela, welcome. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and, and allowing me in the space today. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Awesome. So just to start, we'd love if you could just guide us through a short practice, a grounding practice to really help everyone settle, come into the space together. Yes, absolutely. And I want to ensure our brains are kind of primed and ready for the conversation today. And many of you may be rushing from another meeting, and maybe this is your first mindful moment uh, of the day. And research tells us actually that learning, innovation, resilience, having a growth mindset uh, can all stem from bringing intentional thought to what we're grateful for. So I wanted to get us warmed up and just take a moment and tell us what you're grateful for right now in this moment. And if you could put it in the chat, if you're comfortable, that would be wonderful. So we could see your answers and other people can sit in some joy with you. Mm -hmm. Today, I am grateful for the sunshine in Chicago. It's been hot and cold on and off. I see some of you are saying life, health, sunshine, opportunities like this. What are you grateful for today in this very moment? And if you don't want to put it in the chat and you just want to sit with it, that's great too. I'm grateful to have this moment to practice gratitude. Love that. Yeah, I'm very grateful. Yeah, I'm very grateful to be back home after a trip. I actually got to see Marshall, so it was wonderful. Perfect. And thank you all for, for uh, if you put some in the chat. If you still want to put your answer in the chat, please do. Um, love, love to see what you're grateful for here. Connecting with conscious people, absolutely. All right, well, thanks for taking the time. I know, again, this, is, this might be the only mindful moment you have, but I hope you uh, create space for other mindful moments too. Back to you, Jacob. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for that moment gratitude. To start the discussion, I just want to ask you more about your past, some of your influences, and how these have helped you move in the direction of the work that you're currently doing. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, my background is in organizational psychology, so that is what I have been trained in, and I spent a lot of my time, uh, like you mentioned, you named off some of the organizations that I've worked with, but while I was doing that, I started a coaching practice, actually. And my goal with my coaching practice was to help people navigate the workplace. So I was working with a lot of women of color, actually. And what I found was I was coaching these women through the tail end of harm in the workplace. 
So it was uh, women who have come to me with, with trauma, with um, difficulty navigating a system that wasn't created for them. And that prompted me to shift my thinking around like what my purpose actually was and what my mission was. And with my background in organizational psychology, it was actually a perfect meeting of the, uh, of the moments because I was being trained around how to think about organizations as systems, how um, you know, a system could be something that benefits humanity and society and communities or harm it. And so my work was really grounded in my, my shift to the work that I do today uh, is a step forward to fix the system <laughs> and less about coaching the people at the end of being through the system. So I want to create more positive human-centric workplaces. Mm, wonderful. And, and that you know, marriage of that systems thinking and on, because you understand the individual experience so fully, it's, it just seems like a natural progression. Um, so it's, it's really wonderful to see how you've, you know, taken that step forward and, you know, are watering the seeds of change that might, you know, will eventually, as we continue to work, um, just help people so much more on a wider scale. So it's, it is wonderful to see that. Absolutely. I really like how you phrase it as at first you were working with people who've been through the system and been hurt by the system, but now you're looking directly at the system and working with it. Um, so really having that human centric approach is so important so that, you know, we don't get lost just looking at the system and we don't get lost just looking at the individual. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate your perspective and the work you do so much. Yeah, we have to meet in the middle on both ends because there have been people who have are on the tail end of the system and we have a whole generation of people entering the system. So, you know, my goal is to create, create uh, workplaces that look very differently than when I entered the system, right? Or, you know, when people, I'm a millennial, so millennials entered the system uh, I know we have probably a lot of Gen Z, you know, this emerging workforce, this emerging leadership leadership that's coming into play. And I'm really optimistic that this upcoming generation is going to be holding workplaces accountable. I think millennials kind of like, you know, started the foundation, but I'm really sensing a change in the paradigms around work right now. Um, so it's exciting to see. Yeah, it'd be great if you could elaborate on some of those paradigms that you see shifting around work. Yeah, so I think the first one is uh, the employer-employee empl contract. I call it a contract because there, it, it's a social contract, right? So when you go to work somewhere or you go to a restaurant or you go to a social environment, you typically have like expectations. And I think the expectations um, have changed quite a bit. I think the expectations before COVID, for example, I think COVID has been a really pivotal time because people have been reevaluating what's acceptable. And I think uh, employees are now saying it's no longer acceptable to have a leader or a group of leaders who are not setting them up for success. Uh, it's no longer acceptable to not work for a living wage. It's no longer acceptable 
uh, to not feel included uh, or that you belong in an environment. And I think people are realizing that, I think people are realizing that it's, it's a responsibility of an organization you know, you have there, it's, I think about organization as a container, right? You have these people within your care for eight hours a day or four hours or 12 hours and how you're working with them, how you are leading them, what you're, you know, how they're coming out of that container into their communities and into society means something. If I'm coming home and I'm sitting at the dinner table with my, my spouse or my roommate and I'm coming home beaming because I'm full of purpose and I'm fulfilled. That looks very different in my day-to-day -day versus me coming to that dinner table at the end of the day, completely exhausted, drained, feeling like I've spun my wheels all day. So how are you in your container as an organization cultivating the right behaviors, healthy behaviors to make people better people? And I think that's something that hasn't been an expectation before. The expect the contract before was you give me a paycheck, I work for you, I leave, and I live my life. <laughs> and they're two separate things. I think the worlds are merging a little bit and people are not up for waking up every day and putting on their work face and going into work and then coming back home and taking off the work face. I think people want those things to be integrated and seamless. Yeah, definitely. And I think this leads really well into our next question around the leadership commitment. And, you know, why is it so important for creating a culture of wellness for leaders to be bought in for social, these social contracts for really making this difference in how all employees can show up and not have to feel just so drained, burnt out at the end of their day, for example. Yeah, I think we oftentimes think about leadership as a position. We think about it as something you are, once you have it, you're entitled to it. Uh, and I think, Marshall, back to your question about paradigms that are shifting. I think that leaders, you know, I, my personal philosophy is your, your, the people on your team or your community make you a leader. You're not, you're not entitled to the, to the title. So you have to work for it every day. Uh, and I, I think leadership is also a mentality where anybody could be a leader. Uh, you can display leadership behaviors at home, in life, at work. Uh, and leadership is, is simply just positively impacting another human being. And so I think leadership, when we talk about leadership commitments, what we're talking about is oftentimes you know, who has the decision-making power at the organization? At the end of the day, who is able to make a decision? Who, who has the, uh, the say, but also perhaps the investment to make bold decisions and make different decisions? <laughs> um, and in my, per in my um, honest opinion, I don't always think those people are actually leaders. They might be in positions of leadership, but you still need those people who can make decisions to be fully enrolled in whatever you're looking to achieve. Because if I am a team member within an organization and you have, you have given me lip service about inclusion, but then your behaviors are not matching your words, there's cognitive dissonance for me. 
right? It's kind of like when you, I don't know, uh, when you look online and the Target website and there's toothpaste available and then you go all the way to Target and they say, oh, there's no toothpaste available. It's like, but that doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, so in organizations, it's the same. We do a lot of talking and we, we present statements of inclusion and values, but we haven't talked about the behaviors that are aligned to those things. We haven't role modeled those things. Uh, and that's where we, that's what, really what we're talking about. We talk about leadership commitment, which is we're walking the walk. And it's not just perception, it's actually living and breathing it. And we're matching our words with our actions. And once people see that, once your workforce sees that and the positions in the, the people who are in positions of decision-making are, are demonstrating that, then it is, it, there's kind of a, a, a meeting in the middle that happens because um, culture is not just top down. It's also a groundswell. So um, you need both to kind of meet at the middle in order for that sweet spot of culture change to happen. Yeah, both of those are seem so just important. And for that bottom up meeting that top down, what would you say are ways to kind of organize that movement so that people can, so the entire company can be on the same page? Um, because if, you know, a bottom-up um, grassroots approach to culture shift is completely different than what, you know, is, is occurring top-down, um, obviously it won't, there'll be another cognitive dissonance there as well. Yeah, so I, I will mention that culture happens regardless if you intentionally build it or not, right? So there's a spectrum to this. There's some organizations that don't focus on culture and it's all groundswell. And it's kind of like, like an untended garden, lots of weeds, you know, there's no real like intention around where things go. Uh, it's kind of a, the wild, wild west. Um, so bottom up only does not always work well, but, and a lot of times organizations, you know, they, they try to create this organic building of culture, which I think there's a, a nice middle ground to this, but I think the key is listening. It's being intentional about listening to your people and understanding that as an executive team, for example, leadership who are steering the ship, they are going to, the bigger you grow, the more disconnect there is between what actually happens and what that team thinks happens. <laughs> And what happens I think is they stop listening. They stop uh, because they think that an annual survey is going to give them the data that they need. They stop asking people how they're feeling. Uh, they just assume that you know, those two influencers that they always talk to are a representation of everybody at the company. So listening, and when I say listening, like, like from a tactical perspective, what that means is leaders see it as their responsibility to funnel the experience of their employees. So they are advocates, they're speaking up for their people, but they're also funneling information to the leadership community, the people who are leading the organization. And this could be in the, pro, you know, this could be a survey, but this is also like day-to-day -day human connections and conversations. And the executive team or the top 
layer of the organization also has to look in the mirror and be able to say, gosh, you know, we, we've, we thought we were building a culture of inclusion, but the impact is not happening. <laughs> the, la- the plane has not landed. Uh, and that happens a lot where it's like, we're doing all these programs and these things and we're rolling out training and we have a culture of inclusion now, right? It's happened. Where employees are saying, no, well, I, there's still secret networks that happen that I'm not invited to, or there's social circles that are still occurring where I, I'm excluded. Or I don't feel like I have the same opportunities as, as Brad or you know whatever the, the situation is. So it has to be an ebb and flow of listening, taking that information and constantly having a organizational conversation about improvements around culture. And that means saying, we heard you, here's what we're going to do about it. Or we heard you and we can't do anything about that, but we've heard you. (laughs) Because most people just want to provide their perspective and want to feel heard and, and they are okay if you're not able to do everything under the sun, if you tell them the why. So I know that was a really long answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, it was a great answer. And I really love the human centeredness of everything you've talked about so far, because at its most basic level, listen, right? Like at its most basic level, that's something that we've learned from kindergarten, pre-K, that's something that our parents taught us when we were babies. Like you Mm -hmm. have to learn to listen. You can't understand until you listen and you can't be understood until you listen. So that was a really nice way of taking something such as systemic change and breaking it down to some really simple parts that we pretty much can all understand. Yes, and a lot of this, I you know, I I talk about culture all day long. So I I hear the gamut of how people perceive culture, this buzzword, but literally all culture is, from my perspective, you'll you'll hear a lot of other definitions, but it's, are your actions matching your words? Is, Is there cognitive dissonance between those two things? And going back to paradigms, I think that organizations just haven't been built. The traditional workplace was developed during the industrial revolution, right? It was focused on machines, not people. So we have to like get ourselves out of, out of the, the, the box of what we, we have been taught work should be. You know, we've, we've kind of been duped, you know, uh, I, I believe around what work should be when really we should be asking ourselves, why do we do that? Why do we not, why do we not share salary expectations? Or, you know, why are we not transparent? Because when we're not transparent, then we put ourselves in positions of inequities. Or why do we not share business updates with our team transparently? You know, what's what's behind that? I think if you if you take the time to unpack that, you'll if you keep asking why, you'll realize it's pretty arbitrary why we do some of the things we do. Right. And that's, it's great that you bring that up because there's a technique in design thinking that I think people would just find helpful in general where it's called five whys. Mm -hmm. So you identify what you think the problem is, 
then you ask why, 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 and then sometimes it takes more than five why, sometimes it takes less, but you find out that you end up getting to the core of the problem, and it's almost never what you thought the problem was. We're almost always working to address symptoms. Um, do you have any other tools or techniques or strategies that you use to get to the actual core of issues rather than just addressing symptoms? Yeah, I, I, that is a common approach that I use, uh, the, the five whys. And I also use human-centered design with a lot of my strategies and, and approach. Uh, the other thing, the other strategy to get to the root cause of things uh, is to do a culture assessment. Uh, you know, work with somebody within your organizations or, or outside of your organization, like Source Wellness, to ask the right questions. <laughs> uh, because I think sometimes we're so in it and we think, oh, this is a turnover issue or this is a retention issue, but that's not the issue, right? That's a symptom. People are leaving for a reason. People are not leaving, you know, just because there's typically a reason. And even if that reason is we left for more money, you know, that even if you ask those four whys again, right, you could get down to the fact that that person actually was, you know, never paid equitably in the first place and that compounded over time, right? And that could be a systemic issue that you need to solve for. So a culture assessment, a way to quite honestly, give yourself a reality check to say, this is a culture we've been built, we thought we've been building, but let's actually talk to our people because our people tell us what our culture is. The executive team doesn't define it and, and make it happen, right? I know a lot of organizations say, we are an inclusive culture and they scream it from the rooftop. That's not actual culture. Culture is how your employees and your people and your customers and people you serve view you and perceive you. Right. With that sense of connecting to how your employees perceive you, how outside perspective, outside of the organizations perceive you, how do these values, that intersection of DEIMW that we're talking about, diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness, it sounds like with mindfulness, a piece of it is listening, mindfully listening. Um, but how does that all tie into leadership growth and organizational slash cultural well-being? Yeah, so, you know, I think we're, we're very focused on doing well, right, as organizations. What are the metrics, right? What are our bottom, what's our scorecard look like? What's the bottom line look like? And I think we fail to I don't think we, I think, I don't think we're ignorant to this fact because I think everybody knows like work is usually done by people. Uh, there's always a person behind, even if it's, if it's, you know, AI or machine based, there's usually a person behind the strategy. Uh, there's somebody, there's a mere mortal behind that machine with uh, a brain or, you know, someone who is just a human being, flesh and bone. And so, I think when we talk about DE&I plus M&W as a whole, that is culture. I think sometimes we, uh, we separate these two things, but if your people are not able to perform at their best, if you are presenting barriers to their brilliance, 
you're not getting the creativity, the innovation, the growth, the outcomes, the performance that is needed to add to that scorecard, right? So, the, you know, sometimes people talk, I hate, I hate the word human capital because it makes people feel dispensable. Your role as an organization is to create an environment that is safe and nurturing for people to do their best work. That is, that is your responsibility as an organization. Not everybody feels that way. I, you know, we feel that way, right? Which is why I think you're hearing a lot about social impact. You're hearing a lot about ESG, sustainability. We want to create organizations that are regenerative, regenerative, right? So we want to create sustainable organizations where people are getting energy from it, not being having energy sucked away from them. And, you know, I, again, this is a very meta concept. And when I tell people about it, they think it's really great, but it's like, well, how do I do it? You know, you need to, again, organization as a container, you need to create a thriving environment so that person leaves that environment and can create an impact somewhere else. And to get to your question, you know, I think that, and back to the employer-employee contract, I think we have to let go of this idea that people need to be loyal to companies. People need to be loyal to themselves, right? And, and I think that's a really hard concept for organizations because it's such an, an old paradigm that's been created that I am your employer, I am paying you and you are providing me a service versus I am for whatever period of time, two days, two months, two years, 20 years, you are, a, you are offering me your brilliance and your talents. It's a completely different way to think about people, right? So I think when you talk about DEI M&W, that is really about how do I as an individual, how do we create tools in an environment where an individual can thrive, but how do we also ensure the system is not a barrier for those things? Absolutely. Yeah, it's that individual learning where we can, if you know, individual employees are spending so much of their time at work, you know, we might as well help people feel nourished, feel psychologically safe, um, so that they can do their best work, so that they don't, they are energized leaving work. I mean, spending so much time, it will make you tired a lot of times but how can we feel like we have purpose how can we feel more a little bit more energized hopefully um yeah and so I'm curious about ways in which you know people can feel that psychological safety that sense of nourishment um if there's any examples yeah so I um so I think there's two ways to think about this question. One is people who are in environments that are not psychologically safe. Um, there are some self-soothing techniques that you can do to ensure that you are creating healthy boundaries. You are um, self-soothing and self-healing in environments that are not ideal. Uh, that is not the ideal situation, right? You know, I will, if you are in a place of privilege to leave a situation like that, I 
100% would recommend you do because life is short and not being psychologically safe or having constant cognitive dissonance around what you're experiencing and what's being said to you every day is mentally draining and it's not healthy. It's actually a form of abuse. So if you think about it that way, um, if you have the privilege and the opportunity to leave a situation like that, a relationship, a workplace, any container that is creating that type of environment for you, you if you can, you have to leave it. Um, the second thing is, what does a psychologically safe environment look like? It looks like people feeling safe to speak up, people feeling safe to be authentically who they are. Uh, and that's important because again, I talked about the, the work face, right? Like, you know, I spent a lot of my career in corporate America putting on a face. I was a completely different person at work. I had the work voice. You know, you hear all the, <laughs> the TikToks about the work voice. I had the work voice. Uh, and I was com a completely different person at work because I was trying to fit in to a mold. And I was mimicking the people around me who were in positions that I wanted to be in, which were typically people who did not look like me or had the same background or experiences as, as me. And so that physical energy of me doing that every day drained me completely. So a psychologically safe environment is an environment that creates a space where everybody feels safe to be who they are. Uh, I, I always, I'm a little weary about saying the word authentic because it's not okay for you to be authentically yourself and also damage other people. So I'll just put that preface there, authentic, uh, you know, authentically yourself within the, the confines of being kind and nurturing to other people, right? Because I know some people are like, well, you know, if I'm just an asshole, you know, well, that's just who I am. That's authentically me. And that's not okay. So authentically yourself, uh, being able to speak up and feeling, feeling as though you can make mistakes. You know, the, the person who like sits, I was the person who sat at their laptop like for an hour before I sent send to an email. <laughs> that is not an environment where there's psychological safety because I think I'm going to get in trouble or if I take a risk, I'm going to be reprimanded for it. Organizations that are psychologically safe produce more, they have more creativity and innovation because people are able to seamlessly contribute to the organization versus a psychologically unsafe environment. It's almost like walking on eggshells. So I'm spending more energy worried about the next step than actually doing the thing. <laughs> uh, so there's just a business case for building psychologically safe organizations. And, and I hope I gave some perspective as to what they look like, but also what you can do if you're not in a psychologically safe space. Absolutely, yeah. And I'd also just like to ask, you use the word container a few times to refer to an organization, refer to a relationship. Um, I was wondering if you could just explain a bit more of what you mean by a container. Yeah, so, um, you know, that is used, um, that word is used a lot in counseling, coaching, uh, but also facilitation. Um, so when I say container, it's, it's just a space that you're in. It's, um, it's a point in time 
it could be a community. Uh, it could be, you know, and if you think about the transition from one space to another, or one container to another, um, my workplace may be one container, but you know, when I'm at home, that may be another container. So I can feel maybe safe within my workplace, but when I come home, that container is problematic. <laughs> so I think I like the word container because it's like you're holding something, you're holding space for somebody. And as leaders, I think we have to do, we have to hold people. We have to support them in this container. Um, we have to make sure there's no holes in the container so they don't slip through or, you know, we're really creating a space and then we're, cre we're curating a space that is safe. And so it's really just a visual to kind of help you understand as a leader, how do I, within the parameters of this environment, how do I, with my platform, my privilege, create a safe space? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and with that with that container of feeling safe, it allows people, like you're saying, to be more authentic, even with, without you know sinking other people's ships. Yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. And and moving back to that sense of self-soothing when people aren't in are in those positions where they're not able to necessarily leave a position, stuff like that. Um, I think that's where things like mindfulness, wellness come in for individuals to we're going to work through what they are going through. Um, but again, we don't want to place the onus on just on the individual because we know these, the systems are creating these problems for people where people do not feel included. They don't feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess we see that a lot of times large companies are not able to fully implement DEIMW. They're not able to fully implement diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives with their, you know, head of DEI or head of wellness, where they're not, all of these strategies are not across the board where, you know, the C-suite isn't fully bought in or like they don't even talk, they're not even included in business strategy. So I'm curious to hear about, you know, coordination of programs versus culture change. We talked about that a bit earlier, but I'm just curious if you could talk more to this phenomenon. Yeah, I think um, the reason why DE&I initiatives and well-being initiatives are not working, which by the way, they're not working. We, there's data that tells us the uh, billions of dollars we're spending on these programs are not creating the change is not matching the amount of money we're spending. So um, the reason why we are not getting the bang for our buck is because we are so focused on finding a quick solution to a deeply seated systemic issue. And I think we've focused so much on hiring two people officers, uh, heads of people to own this work, when in reality, this is leadership work. This is your organization determining the type of impact it wants to make and walking the walk. <laughs> that is what this work is. So as much as I love mindfulness apps or I love yoga or I have my own practice, that's not going to change health outcomes. It's not going to change the disparities. It's not going to change determinants of health. Those are the, the, the systemic issues that we're dealing with. 
what is going to change those things, at least in your container, right, your organization, is investing money to pay people a living wage so they're not working from a place of scarcity and survival. And those things, like when, when a CEO hears that, it's like, how much is that going to cost me, right? <laughs> it's an investment. It's money. Yes, but you're losing you know, your, your, your turnover is 150% at $6,000 a pop, because that's how much it costs to replace an individual is $6,000. But you're worried about, you know, this investment, which is going to create more sustain, a more sustainable container. So you don't have to have 150% turnover. So we have to get to the issues. I, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> um, we have to wake, you know, we have to wake up we have to have a reality check and identify the real issue. And we have, to, we have to invest in the issue and we have to change. We have to look inward and change ourselves because you can't have a uh, you know, anti-racism statement when your executive team still doesn't believe racism is, exists. <laughs> or you can't have, you, again, the words and the actions not matching is, and then adding on programs that are um, short-term fixes, it's literally a waste of money because what's happening is you're not, you're not addressing the basic needs of your people. And if you, I know we've talked about this before, but if, you're, if you've ever taken a psychology class there's something called the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the base is basic needs, food, shelter, and then the next one is, uh, gosh, I, I should know this by heart, but it basically goes all the way up to self-fulfillment. Um, but you can't reach the next level until you've satisfied the first level. So if you're launching the, you know, a wellness program where it's a walking program, which is all great, those things are wonderful if you're higher up on the, the pyramid. But if people are still not getting paid equitably, they can't feed their family, they can't take a vacation, they can't take time off, they're exhausted, they're sick. That program that's up here is gonna be an eye roll and it's gonna be a waste of money and it's not going to address the culture change that you're looking for. And some um, people's ways of conceiving of that hierarchy, I've also heard it broken down into um, needs that come out of deficiency versus needs that can facilitate mm -hmm. growth so if we're trying it sounds like you're saying like we try to do too many other programs that facilitate growth but we don't acknowledge that there's a deficiency in a b and c then nothing is ultimately going to end up happening you can't build a house without a foundation correct absolutely and if you think about it you know because i think a lot of us come you know myself i come from a place of privilege i have a roof over my head uh, I am fed, um, you know, I'm, I have, I'm living in a household where I'm taken care of. I don't have any dysfunction here. You know, there's a lot of things that we take for granted. Uh, and we don't, and we don't realize that there's really that, like you said, coming from a place of deficiency and scarcity. If you've created that in your organization, competition, inequity and in pay, um, lack of access to opportunities. We will go into survival mode. We are nothing but complex animals, right? 
So we will go into survival mode and we actually use different parts of our brain being in that deficiency mode versus that mode of growth. It's a completely different part of the brain that we're using. And so how do you get people out of survival mode? And how do you make sure your organization isn't creating uh, systems or things within the organization that are causing that uh, survival mentality? Yeah, and that necessity of just moving from scarcity to a place of, you know, I'm, I can, I have my basic needs, man. I can start to think about thriving when you can't thrive unless you have those basic needs met. So that absolutely really, that really resonates. And I'm curious thinking about how to move into like talking to leaders specifically about these things. It's clear that they need to pay their employees living wage, um, things like that. And like, what are other you know, if you had to say three pieces of advice that you tell leaders on how to improve wellness and culture at their organization, um, what would what would you say? So I'll speak from the perspective of like organizationally, if I was speaking to a group of leaders within an organization or a CEO, uh, the first thing would be invest in your leaders <laughs> because invest in your, so if you, if you are the leader, invest in yourself as a leader and really do some really do some um, specific work around identifying what leadership behaviors look like at your organization and ensure that you are baking in wellness, DEI, all the buzzwords <laughs> into that model. Because you I think we I think we with culture we don't we don't really define what we mean by things. We just, we, we take the next buzzword and we say, yes, this is a culture of inclusion. But what does inclusion look like from a leadership perspective? What are you expecting your leaders to do? Are you ensuring that you're hiring people, leaders who are actually capable of doing that? Are you holding leaders accountable to the opposite? Um, that piece of work is so important. Um, because I think a lot of organizations focus on values. They don't define those values. And then further, they don't define those behaviors for leaders. So you have a whole different, like you have all these different mental models coming together. You have to create some consistency and clarity. So that's the first thing. The second thing is pull the weeds. If there are people at your organization who are causing harm, they, they have to go. I don't like, I, I know, I wish there was like a better way to say that. I wish I could, you know, polish that language a little bit, but truly, you know, leadership is a responsibility. And if you are causing harm, either have the self-awareness to say, this is not for me. I don't have the patience to coach people. I don't have the patience to grow another person. That's why I didn't have kids. You know, I mean, whatever your mentality is, don't be a leader if you don't want to ensure that other people are thriving or you don't want to impact people positively and be intentional about that. And that's okay. I think organizations also need to create career paths for people who want to uh, be fulfilled and advance, but don't want leadership positions because it's a, it is a responsibility. And I, I believe it's a responsibility, not just to the organization, but to society because leaders have such a profound effect on their employees. That's the second thing. 
don't become a leader if you don't want to be and hold leaders accountable for not exemplifying your leadership behaviors. And then the third thing would be, uh, I think, make bold decisions. Inve invest that million dollars in your people. You will get it tenfold. And you know, I think a lot of times people say, "Oh, well, nobody's really, uh, nobody's really um, satisfied with their pay, right?" And I think that's true. But if you're not paying your people a living wage, and again, they're working from a place of scarcity, that that is the best you're going to get from them. So I think making bold moves, making bold investments in your people will, you know, exponentially return its value because people are amazing. When treated well, when uh, when when nurtured, people are amazing and will just blow you away. I know that's you know there's no numbers to that, right? I don't have a, a stat for you there, but it's true. If you treat people well and you give them what they need, you give them the tools, clarity, and the empowerment, they're gonna they're going to um, treat you and your customers and the people you serve even better. Yeah. There's no like 150% more nourished or anything like that. <laughs> right. And nourish. <laughs> Let's define what that means. Yeah. yeah. I wish I had a stat for you, but I mean, there are stats that say that, yeah. you know, return on investment around employees who are given a positive employee experience, who are working with empathetic leaders, there is an absolute return on investment. There are many, many articles that, and, and stats that tie to, to that number. So there's definitely stats out there. Uh, if you're interested, hit me up. I'll definitely send you some. Um, but there's a business case, but it's also a human case. I don't think we talk about the human case enough. We talk a lot about business cases, but there's a huge human case around this work too. Absolutely. And you can't expect your employees to act from abundance and nourishment and thriving if you yourself aren't willing to invest as a leader and if you're, if you're as a leader are acting from scarcity, your employees yeah. naturally will as well. Um, awesome. This is, this has been enlightening for me and we still have some time. I wanted to make sure we got some opportunities for our Q and A. Um, we had a question earlier from Alina. Um, she asked, can you share how you work with the system? Give some examples. I think we were talking about um, systemic change. I'm not exactly sure. Marf, do you happen to remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was in the beginning when Angela, you were talking about how you more so started with people who were being hurt by the system, then transitioned into how you worked with the system itself. And oh. um, I think that's when Alina commented. Gotcha. She said very early on versus working with the people focusing on the system. So the question is, how can you share how you work with the system? Okay, gotcha. So um, the work that I do right now is I do culture assessment work. So I come into organizations and I provide the reality check <laughs> on their culture. So I am, when I say I'm working on the system, I'm, I'm working on the culture of the organization versus coaching the person that's a result of that culture. So my goal is to be more proactive. I wanna be able to proactively work with these organizations to create environments where people don't need to come to a coach to 
uh, have to rehash traumatic experiences at work. Uh, instead, they're coming to a coach to say, how, how can I become an even you know, better person? How can I grow? How can I expand my knowledge? So when I say working with the system, it's really about working behind the scenes to make sure that organizations are creating a healthy environment for their employees. Alina, did that answer your question? Great. Awesome. Any other questions for Angela as we move forward? And I'd say while we're waiting for questions, I wanted to ask Angela, are there any resources that you'd like to recommend for someone who's interested in learning more about the work that you do? Yeah, so I have a podcast called Humanly Possible Future of Work Conversations. Uh, I invite guests who are changing the world of work and we're starting to shift the conversation about social impact and how organizations can be a catalyst for social impact. So I think you all will enjoy that. And also if you're interested in behavioral psychology, uh, organizational psychology, um, there's definitely a ton of resources out there about what that is, what that career path might look like. But I think, you know, generally, if there are any leaders listening, I think we have an opportunity to grow as leaders and understand kind of behavioral economics at work and behavior at work. Um, that's something that's not just for your HR team to figure out, right? It's actually a part of leadership. So happy if you add me on LinkedIn, Angela R. Howard, I'm happy to share resources with folks too. And I think there's a question, what are some ways to cultivate leadership buy-in for culture change? Yeah, so that um, that is a whole nother webinar. <laughs> I feel like we could talk about that for a long time, but I'll just mention a few things. Uh, one is uh, I think consolidating everybody's view about what culture should be. Uh, I, again, I think leaders come with different mental models, right, of what culture should be. And the first step is alignment. The first step is getting the words on paper. Uh, we call this, we were talking about this just the other day, but, you know, creating some kind of culture charter, something that can be put on paper where everyone talks through, feels their hearts and their minds are connected to it. And you've also solicited some feedback from your people, from your employees to incorporate into that charter. Uh, once you have something on paper, I know this could, take, this could take months, right? I know it sounds like an easy process, but this could take months of just conversation and hashing and rehashing and getting the words right. But once you get the, the words and the behaviors correct, that's when you can start to bake it into everything you do. So if you've decided that inclusion is a core part of your culture charter, you've defined what it means. When I, when I say defined what it means, I mean, if you were rolling a camera, what would you see? What would it look like? And then what would it look like when it's not happening, when it's the opposite? Defining those things will help you hire the right people who are gonna amplify that culture. Um, again, hold people accountable, develop them, so to your point about leadership buy-in, I think it has to be a really intentional effort. The very first step is alignment. And then you have to keep some integrity with that leadership team. 
right? That leadership team, everyone's going to be looking to them to show up, to show up with those behaviors. So if you have people who are not behaving that way, uh, you have to, I think, coach them um, and, you know, create some kind of environment, a psychologically safe environment with that team where they can call each other out, where, you know, safely and respectfully, uh, but also, also being open to it changing because culture changes, culture ebbs and flows, right? There's a lot of startups that are moving at a million miles an hour. So um, making sure you're, you're constantly coming back to that leadership team and ensure that the culture that you have in place is the right one. And then measure it, right? So the conversation doesn't end after you set the charter. Now you're measuring it, uh, maybe through a employee experience survey or listening tours or focus groups. And so the last piece I'll mention is the CEO, the, the top executive, the founder also needs to be a really core part of the integrity of, of culture for that leadership team. Because again, it kind of works in layers. Like if the CEO isn't exemplifying culture, your leadership team isn't going to do it. Your people aren't going to do it. It's going to trickle, trickle down and up. So those are just a few things, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it's a intentional change management process to work with. Awesome. That was amazing. I think we'll have time for one more question um, from Ellen M and then we'll have to wrap up. All right, so yeah, Ellen asks, in many organizations, in many orgs, leaders come and go, especially in small orgs, or with an acquisition or merger, this can really affect culture, even if you've done a lot of work. We talk about organizational knowledge loss. How do you work with organizational culture loss? And you are touching on the answer as we speak. <laughs> yes, so maybe you, Ellen, you probably sense that you always have to come back, right, to that and I'm saying charter, and, and I know in your head, you're probably thinking of like a sheet of paper. It could come in many forms, but it has to be something that's been memorialized and aligned on. So culture changes. When people leave, you have, you have to regroup, right? And say, okay, where are we at? Let's assess where we are. Let's talk about where we're going. Business plans change. People change, business plans change. Uh, so all these moments that matter are opportunities to reevaluate the type of culture you're aspiring to. And again, having someone come in for a culture assessment to create that reality check and then develop a roadmap that you can hold yourselves accountable to uh, is, is a great investment uh, because it takes some of the noise out of all the personal opinions of what should be around culture. A great question, Ellen. Thank you. Wonderful. And an incredible answer. So thank you, Angela. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. So I think we're going to wind down now. It's absolutely incredible to have you, Angela. Your wisdom, your experience, your competence is on another level, truly. And it's been amazing connected, being connected with you in this conversation and through our collaborations. Um, source Wellness's vision is to become the most trusted and respected source of high-quality DEIMW culture change for organizations, culture direction for organizations. So for more information on how you and your organization can partner with Source Wellness to introduce programming and strategic culture consulting, 
make sure to go to our website at www.sourcewellness.co. And Marshall will also put that in the chat. Also make sure to follow Source Wellness on LinkedIn. Follow us on Instagram as well, which is at It's Source Wellness. We appreciate having you so much. Um, oh, I love that, Alina. Darling, you belong here. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. I'm trying to point to it. Yeah. You all belong here. So thank you for uh, allowing me in this space. And, and thank you all so much uh, for the questions. Marshall, Jacob, it's great to uh, just be in partnership with you both. So thank you. Yeah, we've had so many conversations where we've been like, we need to record this and put on a webinar. So <laughs> the fact that we actually got to do it has been such a pleasure and an honor. So thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you all at our next webinar. We do these once a month. And we're very excited. So wonderful. See you at our next one. Thank Thanks, you. Everybody. Take Bye. care. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Intersection podcast, and we appreciate your interest in learning more about DEIMW. Our intention with this series is to spread awareness and to highlight the crucial intersection between diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness. We hope that raising awareness will drive more organizations to prioritize the well-being of their employees. For more information on how you and your organization can partner with Source Wellness, to introduce programming and strategic culture consulting, visit the links in our podcast description. In the description, you'll find links to our website, LinkedIn, and Instagram. On our website, you can book a free discovery session to learn how Source Wellness can provide value to your organization. Thank you for listening, and until next time.